I really enjoy talking to Dr. Dr. Jonathan Rutledge. Jonathan has two PhDs. That's why I say Dr. Dr. He's currently transitioning from the Logos Institute at St. Andrews University in Scotland to the Center for Philosophy of Religion with a research fellowship at Notre Dame. Jonathan is also the co-host of the Logos Institute podcast, which you can look up a lot of great episodes of that podcast. And in this conversation, Jonathan and I talk about his work on forgiveness and what forgiveness exactly is and how psychology can help us understand what forgiveness is. And then we end up talking about how that relates to the atonement in Christian theology and also the strengths and potential weaknesses of analytic theology, which is part of Jonathan's area of expertise. Enjoy this conversation. Would you tell a little bit of a story about how you became a theologian or a philosophical theologian or however you, however you identify. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So we were just talking about this, the narrative identity. I said I wanted to be a baseball player. That's not really true. Um, I did <laughs> want to be a baseball player. Um, but my earliest uh, job of choice when my mom asked me when I was three, she, she tells me that uh, I told her I wanted to be a preacher. So I wanted to do something with like theological study. Um, But the reason I wanted to be a preacher was not because I was interested in trying to figure out these sorts of things, right? It's because only the pastor got to talk during church. And I, (laughs) three-year-old Jonathan was really jealous of that. (laughs) So, um, Wow. Were you an oldest child, may I ask? (laughs) No, I was the youngest. I was just always wanting to chat and run around. So The audacity. um, Yeah. So I guess the seeds of like doing theology maybe started there. Um, Yeah. But I mean, really, by the time I got to, to high school, I started becoming just more interested generally in questions of interdenominational differences mm. because I just got friends who wanted to ask me about like, well, so you're a Baptist, Jonathan. Does that mean, uh, so surely you think baptism is like an important thing uh, for Christians <laughs> to do. Um, why don't you think that saves people? And I'm like, well, huh, that's an interesting question. Let's talk about this. And that basically made me start to read much more scripture and like large chunks to try and understand, like, why is it that we believe these things? So this is a sort of a typical story you might get um, from people. But that led me into a little bit of an apologetics kind of uh, direction Mm -hmm. that then turned into comparative religion. So I had some Mormon friends, uh, LDS, Latter-day Saints, that were very, very dear friends of mine. And they wanted to convert me to the LDS branch of Christianity. And I thought that was interesting, but it was just a very, very different uh, thing from anything I'd ever um, been told. And so I did a lot of research in that. And that sort of created like a very, just an intense interest in these sorts of comparative religion things. So by the time I went out of high school, I thought, okay, I'm going to get a doctorate in comparative religions um, and then teach somewhere at some point. So pretty, pretty much all along my story, I'm typically thinking about doing theology, but then finally I get to college and I, uh, took philosophy instead. I don't know like why I went in the philosophy direction, but I just, uh, basically was enamored with classes and thought what I was learning was so fascinating. And then I thought I would go on to get a PhD in philosophy. So I did. But then I had this sort of like nag, nagging feeling in the back of my my head that like, oh, there's this new thing called analytic theology. I want to look at maybe doing that. And since I did work in philosophy of religion in my philosophy degree, I basically spoke with Linda Zagzebski, my supervisor, and asked her if she thought it would be crazy to go do theology work. 
um, after doing the philosophy PhD. And she said, well, I mean, the job market is what it is. So <laughs> maybe <laughs> you should consider it. At least you get to live in Scotland for a few years. Like you're already screwed. Yeah, so exactly. <laughs> so, so instead you might as well just make this, you know, jobless situation with uh, very little pay last longer. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's when I got the, the opportunity to do the theology stuff out in St. Andrews. So even though I thought I had left the theology train and gone into philosophy before long, eventually I was steered back, back into on. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so, sure that the philosophy training was really valuable in sort of hashing out oh, yeah. the logical part, especially in the tradition of tradition, the tradition of analytic theology, which is like, yeah, the, a many deep and old. old, rich tradition, <laughs> centuries, centuries old. If yeah. James Arcadi was here, he would, he would tell you definitely. But. I don't listen to what James Arcadi said. No. <laughs> so, what do you think was like motivating you as you were on that trajectory? It, were you just like a nerd about like, deeper levels of granularity about truth or was it as you learned about what other people thought like getting into denominational and religious differences maybe you're asking yourself you know if I'm going to make a judgment about what other people think like that it's being wrong or that it's wrong or whatever then I need to have good reasons for saying that because I care about these people yeah so what was like kind of the uh, what's the underlying rudder in your in your quest for knowledge so much yeah knowledge. yeah justin barrett will be really proud of me so i'm a three right in the enneagram um which <laughs> well yeah, i love but... this okay great <laughs> <laughs> no so th the truth is part of my personality at least from my yeah. introspective awareness is very much that i'm a people pleaser so if i disagree uh -huh. with somebody it bothers me deeply because i think I have this sort of feeling that maybe they'll disapprove of me partly because I disagree with them. And it doesn't bother me so much. I want to know like why it is that I disagree with them and if I'm right, why I'm right. Um, but it's not so much to determine why that I'm right, but figure out what the right answer is so that if I'm wrong, I can then at least join with them and then we can, you know, have peace and prosperity and harmony between yes. everyone. So that's that's sort of like that's sort of like a natural motivation that I have generally. I can totally relate to that. Yeah, well, and I grew, grew up in the Bible Belt, too. I mean, so there was no sort of weirdness uh, about pursuing questions of theology. A lot of people growing up in my high school, um, where I was, were certainly like at least nominally Christian and professed that. So unlike a lot of people, the odd person out was the person who expressed disbelief in Christianity or some sort of God at the very least. So there was no sort of weird taboo against talking about those things. And so yeah, I was just curious because I thought it was the most interesting stuff that we had um, to, to learn about. So that largely motivated me to do these things. But also just, I mean, I, I did go the philosophy route initially, partly because of questions in ethics. So I did take a course in Christian ethics at Baylor uh, for my undergrad. That was a fascinating course, really, really well done. We read like Toni Morrison's Beloved and um, the Watchmen comic for this and oh, so dealt good. with like the problem of evil. And I absolutely loved that course, but I simultaneously was taking uh, a couple of eth ethics courses in the philosophy side of things. And as much as I loved reading those texts, I never felt very settled on having any sort of understanding of what an answer to the question uh, would even look like for like, how do we deal with this, this problem of evil and the suffering? And I think the reason now after the fact was largely that they were just approaching the problem of evil from a very different perspective and way of approaching it generally, which tends to permeate um, a lot of uh, theology. 
which I think is an important way of approaching it. At the time, I really felt much more grounded and like I could grasp, right, what was going on in the philosophy side. And so the ability to understand things in this particular philosophy way also is what initially pushed me um, that direction rather than going straight into theology. It's interesting the way you're talking about the way you just answered that question and the critique, um, which I'm sure you can speak to of especially analytic tradition of philosophy and analytic theology, that it is so like disembodied and it sort of has this presumption that if you get a logically coherent, like just figuring out the logical coherence of an idea is the end goal and that there's a part of lived experience and lived life that that cannot address the experience of X, of my religious, my experience with God, my mystical experience, my experience of relationship, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for those who aren't familiar, who might be listening to this conversation, there's the analytic tradition of philosophy and the continental, which is is more the I don't is more the phenomenolo- phenomenological <laughs> version. But yeah, I'm gonna yeah, just yeah, stop right. talking and so that you can be better <laughs> at this because you have so many PhDs and you can explain it better than I am. <laughs> no, no, this is you said that absolutely right. That was really helpful. I mean, it, it is good to set out that the sort of stereotype, right, is that there is this analytic philosophy and then there's this thing called continental philosophy, maybe. Um, and of course, neither of those things is some sort of monolithic, like all analytics are the, exactly the same and all continental people are exactly the same, right? That's, that's not true because you'll have like Kant gets to be a part of both uh, camps sometimes, or there will be debates over who gets to claim this great historical thinker. But I think you're right. There's, there's like a family resemblance, right? Even though there's no sort of set of necessary and sufficient conditions that define continental thought on the one hand or analytic thought on the other hand or postmodern thought right even though there aren't those sorts of conditions nevertheless we can see a sort of tendency to address questions stylistically in one way if you're an analytic right to pursue clarity and coherence using logical Logic. argumentation and yeah, yeah make sure and use lots of symbols that's always a great making property of argument Mod- right? modus ponens <laughs> avoid ponens. metaphor if it's just like purely decorative and isn't adding anything important to yeah. um so uh those are the 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 typical things but of course like uh, analytic theologians and philosophers would disagree with various prescriptions of how that ought to go and similarly, in the the uh, continental camp, you would have something like that. But you're right that analytics tend to have this sort of abstract, not sufficiently grounded way of approaching uh, questions a lot of the time. Though that's becoming less the case, right? So yeah, you uh, seem but, like someone who's trying to work on that kind of. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> you are trying to do more. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's even like epistemology, right? Um, the the discipline of what it is to know things we have this stereotype of, well, knowledge is going to be justified true belief. So S knows that P, if and only if S has a justified true belief that P. Okay, so that's like the this uber analytic way of talking about things. Someone hears that and they'll ask like, S knows that P, who's S, right? Tell me more about this S that you're talking about. <laughs> so that that sort of way of doing things is typical, but there are analytics who take take issue with that, right? They say that, no, you're assuming that knowledge is something which is not going to be relative to the type of knower that we have. And of course, that's an assumption that you might call into question, So, which 
uh, you know, is you actually a very analytic way of doing things, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, like the the stuff that I do on forgiveness, I try to call into question that forgiveness has to be something which is essentially tied to what it is to be human at the at the expense of other types of embodiment, right? Or other types of agents, uh, group agents as opposed to human agents or aliens or um, artificial intelligence, which is kind of a weird thing and very nerdy, I suppose, in some respects. But I think it's an important uh, thing to distinguish, especially in the case of like Christian theology, because certainly God's not going to do forgiving things uh, in the way that humans do um, if we require that forgiveness be defined in too specific a way, right? So this is a way in which I see like the analytic approach of abstracting being helpful because then it allows us to go back in to the specificity and particularity of the people doing a given action of forgiveness. Some people, I, I, I get this in, in the literature often. Um, so I, I, my project is, at least in part, uh, on trying to define forgiveness, right? What is forgiveness? Yeah. And a lot of people want to look at all and only human forgiveness, right? They ignore the divine stuff, especially in the philosophy literature, because they're less interested in theological things, period, um, as a general rule. Um, less so more recently, but still um, not that interested. But a lot of people want to just say, like, what is it to be human? Let's start there and figure out what human forgiveness is. But that's not as helpful in theology, because if we just figure out what you have to do as a human to forgive, it might be different for uh, what forgiveness looks like if you are God in particular. Or it might be different because this assumes that every particular case of human forgiveness is identical to every other particular human case in certain respects, right? And so one way this typically plays out, right, is that a standard definition of forgiveness is that I forgive someone if I forswear my resentment directed towards them for having wronged me. And that definition uh, presupposes a lot, like that if you don't have any sort of negative resentment directed at someone who's wronged you, that you can't forgive them. But that doesn't seem true to life, right? We think about like parents who absolutely love their children. Glenn Pettigrove gives, gives a great example of parents. So if their teenage child wrecks the family car, totals it entirely and comes back and is repentant, crying, the parents don't then like get rid of their resentment right? They don't have resentment. They're worried about their kid to make sure he's he or she is okay. And they're like compassionate. And if, if their child comes up to them and says, mom, dad, I'm so sorry. Um, right. Just forgive me for this. Will you please forgive me? The parents are like, well, of course we do. Are you okay? Tell us uh, like, what do you need? Right. There's no resentment at all, but there's a naturalness to saying like forgiveness is going on in some sense there. So what I'm trying to do in my definitions uh, of things is avoid sort of trying to standardize human forgiveness too widely and also avoid standardizing forgiveness in such a way that only humans can do it. So, or mm -hmm. only humans of a particular sort. What have you learned from the psych science on forgiveness so far that has helped inform this work? It's interesting if you look at some of the definitions in the psycho psychological um, work, the literature, where they define their construct that they want to test on what is forgiveness and how does it work. Most of the time, um, it's some sort of form of this forswearing of resentment or forswearing of some negative reactive attitude, anger or contempt or uh, vengefulness. Um, though some I've been pleased to see uh, in, the in the psychology literature in particular, uh, step back from that a little bit. 
and they try they try to be a little bit more neutral on the sorts of emotions that might be required prior to forgiveness. So that's one thing that's helpful. But the the places where I tend to see the psychology more speaking into my project have to do with well, they're really kind of two different things. So one is the things that forgiveness uh, gets us that we care about. So since I'm trying to define what forgiveness is, one of the things I want to do is motivate why we should care at all in the first place. Some people will think, well, forgiveness is just intrinsically valuable. So obviously this is a project worth pursuing, but not everybody thinks that. So some people think that forgiveness actually is uh, a travesty because it doesn't allow us to um, preserve justice, right? So if you defined forgiveness as the uh, foregoing of punishment, so not punishing somebody for the wrong that they've done, um, but you think justice requires that you punish people, then you can't do both. They're mutually exclusive actions. You can't maintain justice and promote justice while forgiving somebody. I think that that's uh, bound to fail. Um, and there aren't that many people who endorse that strong a, a conception of justice, but there, there are some. But if you move away from that, you might wonder what sorts of good things um, does forgiveness get us? And that's a descriptive, empirically testable question, right? And the people who are best suited to actually test these things are not philosophers, typically, like me, um, or theologians. It's, it's the psychologists. So, um, and of course, like Lindsay, Lindsay Root Luna, uh, who was mm -hmm. with our theopsych mm -hmm. um, thing previously, she has some really, really good stuff with uh, Charlotte Whitfleet. I don't know yep. if you've had her um, previously to interview or anything like that, but both of them, they have a chapter in a book called Positive Psychology, Established and Emerging Issues, where they just connect forgiveness and well-being and go through a huge swath of literature of how forgiveness um, has been traced in like psychological uh, longitudinal studies, right? where they've been able to trace positive correlations between people who will practice like remembering moments of forgiveness where they've forgiven someone else for something in the past. And that when they go through these exercises, it correlates with an increased likelihood to pro-social behavior and attitudes generally and pro-social attitudes, right? These are good things uh, for us to have because they also strongly uh, predict things like increased relational, physical, and psychological well-being. Hopefully, we all care about that a little bit and should want to have increased well-being and flourishing overall. So it looks like forgiveness and forgiving behavior predicts these sorts of things. But the only reason we have any uh, reason to think that's true is because psychologists are going about testing these things. So that's, that's like one way in which psychology comes into play. Yeah. There are also, though, I mean... So Liz Gulliford, I don't know if you know Liz, um, she's at Northampton, um, but she has, uh, she's done some work with Bob Roberts, former professor of mine from Baylor days, speaking of ethics professors at the time, I was taking that out of the course. Um, so Bob and, Bob and uh, Liz, they have, um, they've worked together on something they call the Allocentric Quartet or Quintet, sorry, there are five of okay. them, not four. And it's basically five different virtues that are other centric in some sense. And so those virtues are compassion, generosity, gratitude, humility, and then finally, forgiveness. And what they posit is that those five virtues are sort of like mini isolated microcosm of a unity of the virtues thesis, that those allocentric virtues, insofar as you increase one, 
they aren't going to decrease. They'll help each other uh, to build each other up, um, essentially. So they come together mm -hmm. as, as a whole. Um, so it looks like increasing forgiveness will at least make it possible um, to increase these other things that we care about, these other virtues um, as well um, in ourselves to some extent. And we have data to predict those things too that they lay out. So those are, uh, there are lots of studies on this Yeah, that people, people have done really recently. I mean, probably it, it helps that there's funding uh, to test these things uh, from certain institutions. Well, it's a big one too, especially for Christians, like forgiveness is supposed to be this like very salient feature of our faith and practice. Yeah. And sometimes like we, it, but it's also very hard. It's very difficult. This is, that's a good point to, to sort of um, dive into the other way in which the psychological sciences can come into play with my project, because mm -hmm. there's a debate in theology about whether or not forgiveness is unconditional and required in all cases for Christians. If you just go to the scriptural data, it's it doesn't it, it underdetermines which is the right view, I think. But there are difficult cases if you look at the scriptures, right? So um, sure. you're told to love your enemies by Luke, right? And sure. well, it seems like if I'm going to love somebody, that if they wrong me, I can't hold that against them. That's not a loving thing to do. So I should forgive them, right? That's a natural sort of way to read passages like that. But you might worry that that's not quite right because there are passages like after the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, well, look, if you forgive others the sins that they've or how they've wronged you, then so too will God, the, will your Father in Heaven forgive you. And if you don't do it, then your Father in Heaven won't forgive you. Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> that sounds like there's a world in which God doesn't forgive you, right? And of course, they're like eschatological um reasons for these worries too, right? Depending on your view on doctrine of hell and reconciliation and how reconciliation ties in with forgiveness. But the point is that this is the as, is a debate, whether or not you have to forgive um, as a sort of moral obligation in virtue of being a Christian in every case, no matter what yeah. the person who's wronged you does. I actually have a lot of thoughts on this, probably most of which I won't share in response. But, <laughs> but usually I... I like keeping reconciliation separate mm -hmm. because you can at least make the case that forgiveness is good for the forgiver. And, and like, that's a very, very, yeah. you could demonstrate that easily. It's proven, you know, observably provable. So you, you forgive in order, whatever that means, forgiveness apart from reconciliation, because there could be also safety issues involved. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being, being, if you keep reconciliation in, in play you know maybe th that would be in a relationship with a person who's wronged you and you, it could be dangerous you know right um, exactly yeah. so that's a big concern for me yeah so abuse and addiction cases are very um important ones to keep in mind so i mean there there are some works on self-forgiveness that bring this in, in to bear so if you're if you're addicted like if you're an alcoholic or something one of the things that motivates you to get out of that addiction, um, the motivation is already relatively low in a lot of the testing cases as it is. One of the things that does help to motivate, though, is the guilt right, associated with the behavior. And if forgiveness is to forgive yourself such that you no longer feel guilty in these sorts of ways, it seems like that might undermine at least part of the motivation to stop the bad behavior of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And similarly, in abuse cases in a more interpersonal context, as you were saying, right, a domestic abuser, if um, the one that they're abusing forgives them, and that means 
oh, I'm going to stay around with you and treat you as if uh, I, there's n- mm-hmm. the abuse is, has not happened or is mm-hmm. not something for which you're blameworthy, right? These sorts of reactions threaten to perpetuate this bad behavior, which is not just bad for the one who's being abused, but also bad for the abuser, right? Right. Um, it's bad for everybody. And so if you think that is what forgiveness requires, you may not, right? You might have a different concept going on. But if you think that's what forgiveness requires, then in that context, um, it might be unloving to actually forgive somebody. Um, right. You might need to do something else, right? You might forswear resentment, right. but if resentment is forswearing that is not enough for forgiveness or is not identical to forgiveness, then okay, that's fine. But that's yeah. where some of the definitional issues get a little bit thornier. Totally. We often associate like the idea of punishment or justice with just some sort of like, I don't know what the right word is, but like some sort of like, okay, you did this, so you deserve this punishment. Like we determine what a a punishment should be, but for how bad that thing you did is rather than think of a restorative action which could just be boundaries or it could be, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's, I don't want to get into like the criminal justice system or anything, but. Well, I mean, I'm not know. opposed to it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've lost track of that, but I also think Christians have lost track of that in thinking about God. I mm-hmm. think, I, I mean, I'm pretty like into universal reconciliation ideas, but that doesn't mean I don't believe that God doesn't do restorative judgment and that like as a parent that's what you would do with your kids right like exactly. you would think yeah. i'm not just kicking your butt because <laughs> you didn't listen to me and you deserve this now it's like what can i do that would help you grow as a person and and you know and become a better person and love people better whatever like you would yeah. try to think of something like that you know absolutely yeah the restorative side of punishment as opposed to this retributive uh, stuff exactly. is important to emphasize. I mean, I think depends on what kind of punishment or what kind of rationale for justice is fundamental to justice. Whatever is fundamental is what we're going to attribute to God's justice, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the tendency is that people think of retributive justice as being the fundamental thing. There's some uh, sort of on the face readings of Romans, let's say, that might make people tend to go that direction. But go read some Richard Hayes on, you know, how to see the background from Habakkuk and various other places in Romans. And he's great um, in trying to tie in restorative um, notions of justice, as is uh, Doug Campbell has some interesting work on that too, in um, the deliverance of God. You see that conversation developing in scripture, that retributive stronger retributive stuff in the in the early days you know mm-hmm. and then you have mm-hmm. like then you have like ecclesiastes it's like well no you know and then you have the apostle saying to jesus you know who sinned to make this man blind his parents or him you mm-hmm. know and jesus like wrong well and it's interesting like go back to the lex talionis right so you're reading in exodus and it says an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth and then they think well hold on let's go through a thought experiment real quickly what if a person who's blind in one eye blinds someone else who had two good eyes how do we fix that the 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 equal thing is to take their eye but now they're completely blind that's not that's not an equivalent (laughs) punishment um so how do we do do this in the right way right and so the scriptures even there realize that oh this sort of equal payment for the wrong done and it's it's there's something very difficult about this uh trying to figure these things out and maybe even something which is 
um, as a general rule, right? If if Caspian steals um, another kid's lunch, uh, <laughs> um, or maybe let's make it money so it's easier, right? So suppose he steals <laughs> a, a $10 bill from my wallet, let's say. Um, and I see him, I'm going to say, hey, I want $10 back, Caspian. If you won't give me $10, you can do $10 worth of chores, right? So there's a sense in which that sort of retributive um, calculus makes sense, yeah. but it's not going to make sense all the way down in every case. Totally, um, totally, so. totally. And then jumping back to what you said about, so now the psychology does help you see some issues with making a, drawing a straight line from human types of forgiveness to God's forgiveness. And mm-hmm. one easy one that I could access in my memory is talk, like listening to Lindsay Root Luna teach us about some of the embodied aspects of forgiveness in humans and memory mm-hmm. is a big one, which memory is something that is like, he forgets, he remembers our sins no more, right? Yeah. And yeah. for humans, the ability to forgive maps onto memory in a lot of ways. Like it's easier to forgive over time because our memory mm-hmm. is not perfect. We're not, you know, we're over time, the, the realness of the offense it's easier to forgive because it's it's fading away and god you would think has a perfect memory of all things and actually he's Mm -hmm. not forgetting our sins it's like it's a metaphor right right sure and there was another one also that she even made the claim that studies showing that certain types of genes make it easier for some people to forgive than other people to forgive which also is not the case for god so so yeah i just wonder if you want to talk a little bit more about that yeah i mean so that yeah that's right i mean um at least in all the stuff that i've read from Lindsay, she's my source for these sorts of things too i mean there's a sense in which uh forgiveness itself i take it to be there's there's a context that has to be put in place and Lindsay says this too i don't remember if all of the conditions i give are the exact same one she does but something close anyway like there needs to have actually been a wrong done uh, presumably, if you're the victim, you need to think that the person who wronged you is blameworthy for it. I actually take issue with that particular condition, but it's typical and mm-hmm. intuitive, at least. And then hmm. the third condition I usually give is that you need to remember that you were wronged, that the other person did it to you, and you have to condemn the action that was done as wrong, right? And so the memory is built into the context the way that I understand it. Which means that the longer, the further away we get from an action, if we if it goes away from our memory too much, it's no longer the case that we're forgiving it. We're At least forgetting. Yeah. And and I'm not exactly sure what I want to say on this because there's a sense in which yeah. like we remember the proposition that we were wronged by this person at this time. Really, the memory stuff is most is is mostly, um, I guess, becoming subconscious at that point, right? Mm-hmm. So we aren't actively thinking about the fact that we are wronged because some of the somatic, you know, bodily reactions, the um, and the emotional reactions that are bound up with that, those have subsided over time in various ways, and we aren't um, reacting the same way that we did closer to the event. So I'm not really sure what I want to say in terms of how far away, like before, it, if you couldn't remember that it had been done, even the propositional, just that I was wronged by a person, I don't think you can forgive at that point. Mm-hmm. That what's happened is you've forgotten. And to mm-hmm. forgive is to forget is uh, mm-hmm. not true, at least yeah. as I, I tend to think about it. Yeah. But forgiveness also is not a straight line, like over time, I will make, you know, it sometimes is like yeah. a little spike, you know? And I don't know, that probably correlates to sort of the um, like embodiment of memory too. Like Mm -hmm. this is very silly, but I have an an ex relationship and my 
my current husband knows knows that story and he knows that that for that person in that former relationship had a very specific hairstyle and so if we're walking down the street and he sees someone with that specific hairstyle he says trigger warning oh that's that's really <laughs> because helpful. he knows that will yeah. remind me of you know which is really sweet of him and now it's become kind of a joke yeah. but anyway all that to say that it kind of goes subconscious and mm -hmm. the, but the memory of the harm kind of still lives in your in your body a little bit and then absolutely you know different yeah. things can bring it back up again and you might be like oh wait i thought i forgave that person you know and i need yeah. to deal with that more or something yeah so i have a sort of i have sort of two ways of talking about forgiveness and one is very binary like can you forgive yes um, and another one is much more graded, uh, but trying to honor that really forgiveness is ultimately for us, especially as embodied beings, um, a process, right? It takes time to sort of, and I take that forgiveness is there, there are a lot of ways to talk about it, but it's a way of regarding another, right? So I move from regarding a person as morally blameworthy in some respect or something like that to regarding them as somehow distanced from the wrong in a way that they maybe previously were not, um, at least in my eyes. So it's a way of treating them differently. But the, the sort of binary way um, that I like to put it is I say, well, look, really to forgive someone at a point is to enact a resolution to treat them as if they've, uh, well, so now I get into the technical stuff, to treat them, so enact a resolution to treat them as if, and this is important, as if they are excusable for having wronged me rather than morally blameworthy. So that's the official definition. <laughs> it's actually not the official definition. Uh, the, official, the official definition is more the scriptural one, not counting someone else's sins against them, right? Or holding it against them or not holding the wrong someone else has done against them. But this is uh, one way to spell it out is to enact a resolution to no longer treat that person as if... <laughs> Um, they are morally blameworthy, but rather as excusable for the action that they've done. But that means when I enact the resolution, you can do that, right? You can just do that. Even if it takes time for the resolution to sort of finally take root in who I am and in my body and my emotions, my being as a whole, but it's the taking root time, which is more the process of mm -hmm. seeing that resolution to the end, something like that. That's so good. Oh, thanks. Good. That's good. <laughs> but someone likes it. Good, good important good. work. Yeah, and I think will be so important coming out of like a pandemic. And, you know, I feel like there's just been so much. Oh, yeah. Um, it's been such a tense time and there's such polarization in the ways that people have approached the whole pandemic thing. But now we're going to be seeing each other in real life and worshiping together again in churches and stuff soon. So there might be some hurt feelings, I feel like, and a lot to talk yeah. about. And then we yeah. didn't even talk about like, the, I, maybe you're not working on this, but I know that psychologically that um they separate the idea of forgiveness so like group forgiveness i mean if you're doing forgiveness with scripture um you have to at least give some sort of nod to this thing that like we as a group the people of israel or um whoever i mean th there's a lot of corporate forgiveness right so i mean the whole rights that you get in uh atonement right in leviticus 16 and the the high priest is going on into the holy of holies to um offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the people. It's also people, forgiveness right. of like the the temple and the land and all these weird things that we don't typically associate with these things. But the forgiveness, right, is at least of the, the things which are forgiven, or it's not just persons individually, but also group mm -hmm. persons, right? Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, I do a little bit with that, but I'm trying to, I'm actually working more on it right now. Part of the reason is that not all groups are the same, right? Like of course. Uh, yeah. there are uh, just collections of people um, that happen to be together. That's a group, but it's a different type of group than like a coalition of people who share like an aim, right? Like the Black Lives Matter movement has a sort of general goal that they share and things that they're moving towards um, in their various coalitions like that. It might be more than a coalition though. It might in fact be a collective. I'm stealing technical language from um, Stephanie Collins. Uh, so she uses this okay. in her book, Group Duties, I think. But a collective is not just a group of people that share goals, but they also have a decision procedure, which is sort of, it need not be explicit, but they generally have a way of making group decisions. And in virtue of that, they seem to be able to bear um, responsibility for actions, be able to deal with moral considerations in the deliberations. And in virtue of that, might be able to choose to deliberate to act, right? Um, so I'm trying to figure out what the people of Israel, what category they fit into. I think <laughs> that they can be a collective. Um, the church, I think maybe can be a collective, but the decision procedure of the church, it, how are you supposed to work that out? I guess the Holy yeah. Spirit gets to be like the main decision procedure. I wonder if technology has something to like contribute to that work because the way that like information traveled in groups in ancient times is so different mm -hmm. than now, you know, than, than with the technology we have and the ability to communicate constantly. I don't know, but yeah. just something I, I always think about when I read, I'm like, how did all Israel know, you know, yeah. <laughs> what was the system? Did everybody know, or does everybody have to know mm -hmm. for something to be like a reality, I don't know. So I guess I'm, I'm getting into it now, so I'll, I'll just bring it in. I mean, the, the forgiveness stuff is one side of the work, but the other side is atonement, right? And yes. oftentimes we think of atonement for the sake of forgiveness, right? Um, and this is weird because in, in Christian circles, um, it's not just each individual sinner that needs to be forgiven, but humanity, it's some, you know, oftentimes the group humanity is, uh, yeah. it needs to have forgiveness. And the group's not identical to me or to you or to Adam or Eve or anybody, right? There, right. it's The group is the whole thing um, and presumably an agent uh, over and above the individual agents that make it up, right? And so as soon as you get into atonement, you do need to deal with the sins of the individual agents that make up the group, but you also have this other thing, right? And so you need to have forgiveness of a group, um, in that case, from God. Though mm -hmm. so I think you can have a group that also forgives another group, which is more along the lines of what you're thinking. Like Desmond Tutu, right? If you're talking in like apartheid, South Africa, uh, two groups, they're coming together and they're trying to, I mean... They're, they're trying to explain, like, how is it that we can get past the animosity and all the, the horrendous evils which have been perpetrated upon each other um, and suffered from these things? And uh, Desmond Tutu says something along the lines of, you should forgive, right? He's one of these people who says you, have an, you just have to forgive unconditionally, and that's the only way to move beyond the sort of hatred and malice and disunity that we have. And... He's he's at least convinced me that there's something to that, that even though in the individual cases, like the ones we were considering with abuse and addiction cases, I wouldn't advise that. I think that there's it's worth at least reflecting whether or not the benefits of group forgiveness of that sort, in fact, uh, make it such that it would be better in at least most cases. I'm not going to commit to saying every case, but it does mm -hmm. seem like he, he's certainly on to something fairly insightful. Mm -hmm. And if I'm wrong, I'm okay with that. That's a good point. This should have probably happened first, but we just started going into forgiveness stuff 
and I thought we should run with it. But can you tell me how you started to become interested in incorporating some science into your work? Did that happen very early on with philosophy stuff or like what made you sort of go down that road and feel like it was necessary? Probably Alan Torrance um, pushing okay. me to do it. Um, truthfully, so I mean, I started talking about these things with him when I so I got to St. Andrews in the fall of 2016. And early on, he and his son, Andrew, um, I was meeting with them and just talking with some of the ideas I had for what my project was going to look like. Um, and one of the first things I did was I said, I want to make this a uh, quote unquote value driven project, which means I want to talk about something we should care about and explain why it's important to us. And then he pushed me on that and he said, okay, well, you can't just sit in the armchair as a philosopher and figure these things out. You need to actually try and substantiate it with some psychological um, work and evidence. And uh, when he told me that, I thought, well, I've never, I haven't really done that, but um, I guess I can like, try. Oh, great. And I have to get a third PhD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, um, Alan's done a lot of work on that himself. So he was able to cool. point me in the right directions quickly. Yeah. I mean, so that's, that's how I really got into it was largely because Alan was pushing me in that direction early on mm -hmm. alongside like other theological things as well. But yeah, I owe, owe pretty much all of my moving into that area to him. What about the other project? Have you gotten anywhere in that where you were talking about if different atonement theories connect with, you know, behavior human and I haven't gone very far into it. I want to uh, part of the problem is I'm working on the on like the larger monograph right now and I've got a deadline to meet. And I want to do more research into some of this other stuff to to work on this the other paper. But the general idea of that other paper is I want to think very carefully in theology about where it is that we're making empirical claims empirical claims which can be tested, right, verified at least um, one way or the other to some extent. And But we we make those claims without having gotten any of this, this evidence, right? No empirical support has been done. And that's, that's difficult in theology, not because we don't make these claims. We do, but it's difficult because um, if you want to test whether or not believing, let's say, some particular theory of atonement is going to be correlated with a particular type of behavior, the more complicated the theory of atonement gets, the harder it is to, to ensure that the people you're testing have that exact theory in their heads, right? Yeah. So Justin uh, actually calls this, uh, I think, theological correctness is the issue, the, the potential fallacy of theological correctness, that you're so worried about being absolutely precise about the concept that you get in the heads of the people you want to test, that it ends up not even showing up um, in the data, mm -hmm. right? So that's one sort of background thing that I need to think very carefully about with this. But the general idea is this, that there are, so so in various literatures, in liberation theology, in feminist theology, in womanist theology, in black theology, there are these claims about how certain views of atonement, penal substitution is a typical one uh, that comes up, that it brings about certain types of behavior, which of course are bad types of behavior. <laughs> I'm not in support of penal substitution myself. I'm not actually technically full set against it, but I have my doubts, let's say. <laughs> but in any case, I just thought when, I, when I've been reading through these things, I thought, I think that I, I think they're right, right? That these, these ways of thinking about the atonement probably do lead to these types of behaviors. And then I thought afterwards, I was like, well, why do I think that they're right? That's just an intuition about empirical data that we need to gather. And so what I'm going to do is just look through and point to the places in which claims like these things are made 
and getting very clear on what sorts of things need to be tested and how they might be tested? Yeah, dude, I think it's such a good question. I mean, I used to have such a strong sense that there's so many things that complicate this, like you're already alluding to. Yeah. Um, I would love to see what that experiment says, but then I wonder, like you said, there's different personalities that require different levels of granularity. So the atonement theory that I articulate to you might not be the one you're exactly testing because it's just the person has a more vague sense or the person wants like, or maybe the person's very into theology and has like just quotes the institutes when they, (laughs) when they talk about atonement, you know, I know a few people like that. Yeah, I'm, well, yes, we both do. <laughs> um, and then there's also the question of, well, what maybe certain types of people, which includes like personalities and behavior, are attracted to certain atonement theories. Like, how do you know that it's like causal? Yeah, what's the direction of the correlation? I mean, even trying to figure out how to set up, uh, you know, an act, an experiment, right? So you might think, okay, I'm going to do an induction study. I'm going to prime people so that they have this particular concept in their minds. Um, but it's oh, just, yeah. it's, it's really above my pay grade when it comes down to it. So <laughs> if I'm going to run these experiments, um, one, I need to have people who are psychologists that I'm talking with to help me set it up. And really they need to be in charge, right? Because they're the people with the degrees and the letters after their name that matter, um, for this sort of thing. But I do think I agree. I mean, I, with you that I just think these sorts of questions, because it comes up as an objection to certain atonement theories, specifically like either penal substitution or even satisfaction theories, which I, which along the Anselm line, which I don't think are as objectionable as something like penal substitution tends to be for a lot of people and certainly not for me. Nevertheless, the objection is given to these sorts of theories often. And it would be really nice if it's such a central and important objection to be able to substantiate it as true. And if it's not, It's important to substantiate that it's not a good objection, right? So that we should rely on independent things. And even even if like a doctrine leads to bad behavior, that by itself, that tells me something descriptive about the way the world is, that people who believe this doctrine are more likely to behave this way or the other direction, people who behave Mm -hmm. this way are more likely to believe this doctrine, whichever way Mm -hmm. that is. But that doesn't tell me that therefore I shouldn't teach it, right? So unless I have an independent assumption that, uh, no doctrine in Christianity that's true is likely to lead to bad behavior or vice versa, right? So the psychology is going to give me this descriptive evidence, and then making the normative claim is going to be something else that has to be argued for independently. Yeah, yeah, this is a good meta conversation for uh, probably a lot of things, like people doing this kind of work will encounter a lot of these types of issues. So it's, yeah. it's good to articulate. I was just thinking if I had to articulate sort of, if I had to just draw from my own instincts, I would say that your personality sort of leads you into a certain way of thinking that then sort of like reinforces that. Like it maybe goes like one than the other than the other. But like, I feel like I, I'm like you, I have a very social personality. I know the Enneagram's not valid, like verified scientifically or whatever, but I'm a two with a really strong three wing. I've got a strong two wing, so... Yeah, I espoused a certain atonement theory very strongly when I was young because I was like a people pleaser and everyone around me thought this, right? And so I'm like, yes, I'm going to like dig in on this. And I was like very theologically. But then once I was exposed to more uh, like the breadth of the Christian tradition, everything changed. Like I was completely deconstructed in in my thinking, you know, and so I had to completely like start over. But who's to say 
Yeah. Whatever. It's not my therapy session. <laughs> but then you feel like you have to continually check yourself. You know, you're like, okay, now, especially as someone who's very socially inclined, like, okay, do I think this now just because I'm hanging out with these kinds of people? It, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Cause so most people that I know back in the States, um, from my like high school days and such, most of them, if they endorse any sort of Christianity, endorse something like a penal substitution doctrine of atonement. Yeah, it's dominant um, in the Christian event. Yeah, I mean, so dom- dominant that you have like mm-hmm. Southern Baptist Convention resolutions that say this is like the beating heart of the gospel. And if this you don't preach this, you're not yeah. a Christian. And mm-hmm. I like when I read those, I just react so strongly <laughs> against it. I'm like, that yeah. is you're there's no way that you know that for sure. But um, <laughs> also, I have very strong reason to think that's almost absolutely false. Uh, <laughs> but maybe I'm the one who's got too much arrogance here. That's very possible. But in any <laughs> case, I think the worry, right, is that something like that is too much of a, of a reduction of the atoning work of Christ to just this death on the cross. Mm-hmm. And doesn't attend to a lot of uh, really important passages. Uh, a colleague of mine here, David Moffat, does a lot of really interesting work on the book of Hebrews where the atoning work, the, the cross is the initiation, the starting point of the atoning work as Christ goes in to offer a sacrifice in the Levitical style, right? right. Um, so the author of Hebrews is describing Christ going through um, the heavenly temple and receiving indestructible or inexhaustible life through the resurrection to make him a, you know, the priest of after the Melchizedekian priesthood and all those sorts of yeah, things. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but there's just, I mean, there's a ton going on in there, right? We don't need to sidetrack ourselves in Hebrews and Luke Acts and all of these things. But the point that's is another, that- That's another podcast. For yeah, that's a totally different thing. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, right, there's this danger that I think a lot of people want to reduce the entire like atonement to the death on the cross. But the death mm-hmm. on the cross is crucial um, but it's a part of a process that's much larger. Um, so, I'm with you, bro. I think I yeah. mean evangelical Protestantism in the U.S. It's like their church history goes from the Book of Acts to the Reformation. It's like skips that like, whole period of time, you know. And I think that yeah. if there was more filled in, there it's it it would be more clear that that was one way that people were trying to figure out. Okay, we know something important happened. Jesus did it. Jesus saves, Jesus saves us, but how, what exactly happened, you know? Yep. Absolutely. Important. Preaching to the choir. Having this, I've been having this one a lot lately, actually. (laughs) Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by blueprint 1543. Learn more about our mission, vision, and resources at blueprint1543.org. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion.